0: City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church, St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Particularly this morning who are visiting with us, Um, one is my friend Callie. Um, Callie is a representative of Covenant College, our denominations college. She happens to be in town. I know most of the parents here have a little bit younger kids. But if you want to talk to anybody about to College, where even some of our folks here in the church graduated from, uh, Callie is is here, and she can write off more of her trip maybe if she uh, talks to you. I don't know. Um, but the other person I want to introduce is Chloe. Um, Chloe is here. She is about to be a missionary uh, to the University of South Florida to do campus ministry there. Um, she's raising support and starting, uh, helping to start a new ministry there. So if you're interested in hearing about what God may be doing there at USF, Um, Go ahead and talk to Chloe as well. Um, But I want to talk about something that I like to talk about this morning, and that is uh, the arguably greatest sitcom of all time, Parks and Recreation. If you know me uh, very well, you know that I love Parks and Rec, that it's one of my favorite things and that I've watched it more times than I probably should have at this point. But I want to compare and look at two of the characters in Parks and Rec. One of them is Leslie Knope. If you haven't seen the show, Leslie Knope is probably the main character of the show. Uh, She is a bureaucrat in small town Indiana, and she is absolutely, unbearably optimistic. Nothing in the world can bring her down. Whenever... She faces an obstacle. She faces it with cheerfulness and waffles. She is one of those people that is just so excited about life. Even if you've never seen the show, you know those people. You know that there is that person at work that, that when, whenever it rains outside says, Yeah, but the lawn is getting watered and my flowers are going to grow. That, has, that can not help but see only silver linings and no gray clouds. You know those people. Well, the show has kind of a foil to Leslie Nova, a sort of opposite, and that is April Ludgate. If April, if Leslie is unbearably optimistic, April is unbearably dark and despairing. If Leslie only sees silver linings and no gray clouds, April only sees gray clouds and no silver linings. She is morose. And what's interesting as we look at these two characters, as we look at Leslie Nope and April Ludgate, I bring them up because I think there's something really helpful and instructive in looking at them. Because when we go through struggles, when we go through trials and suffering in our life, most of us look like April or Leslie. You see, our culture doesn't quite know how to deal with suffering and struggle. And so it sort of defaults to these far-end positions. It either defaults to the sort of Leslie Nope indomitable happiness, or the sort of deep-seated darkness of April. And that's the same thing that's true of you and I. Think about when hard things happen in your life. How does that affect you? Do you have a, I-can-do-anything type of attitude like Leslie Note? We know these people. Nothing is bad, right? You just got punched in the face. Yeah, but it saved me a plastic surgery bill. Now my nose is broken and it looks better, right? No. They approach everything. We approach everything with this cheery, we can do it, nothing is wrong attitude. Or maybe you sort of are on the backside of that. I can do it because I am going to absolutely prove everyone wrong. There's sort of this angry edge to us. As we say, I can do it because nobody can tell me I can. not I can do it because nobody's gonna stand in my way. I can do it because I can find the wherewithal in myself. When struggles come along, we're gonna pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and either put on our happy face or put on our determined face and go and do it. Other side to that is those of us, when hard things happen, that kind of say, I can't do it. That fall into despair. When suffering comes along, we feel like we're in a pit and that we're alone. We feel like there's nothing we can do. We get angry. We begin to accuse others and God of unfairness. And so as we look at the way that we handle suffering, the way that we handle adversity, the way that we handle any sort of struggle in our life, most of the time, we default to one of these two ways. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that there's something else. There's another way through suffering. There's another way through adversity and struggles that isn't unbearable optimism or morose darkness. And that's a way that the Bible calls lament. You see, lament is something that we as a culture, and even we as a church, have often left behind. We as a church and as a culture approach things in the exact same way as the world around us. Either with that sort of unbearable optimism, everything is okay, let me just put on some happy Jesus music and go get them. Or, everything is bad, and we sort of go Charlie Brown, you know nobody likes me, everything is awful, and we sort of, because the church has lost the category of lament. And yet, as we look through the pages of the Bible, lament has always been something that is absolutely integral to the life of God's people. So I think it would help if we stop for just a second here and ask the question, what is lament? Lament is is a faith Filled expression of our struggles and suffering that we present to God. It's faith-filled. It's not apart from God. It's not distant from God. It is faith-filled, and yet it is bruisingly honest about what's going on in our life. You see, when we struggle, we oftentimes either shy away from God or try to pretend like the bad things don't happen What lament teaches us is, no, we can have a faith-filled response that is honest in expressing our struggles to God. Now let's think about what we talked about for those of you who were here last week. Last week we told the story and read the story in the Bible where David was in the cave near En Gedi. And when David was in that cave, just so happened that Saul came along. And David had the chance to kill Saul. He had the chance, while Saul was taking care of business in the cave, he had a chance to kill him, but he didn't. Which begs the question, how was David feeling in that moment? When David didn't take that shot, when David didn't take that opportunity, how was David feeling? Well, fortunate for us, David wrote down how he was feeling in that moment, in the aftermath of that moment. So what I want to do is I want to read that song, that psalm that David wrote in that moment, so we can begin to see how did David deal with this adversity, suffering, and struggle in his life. So if you would, stand with me. We're going to read Psalm 142 together. David sang this. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell Him, I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. City Church, this is the word of God written by David nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, when we face struggles, suffering, and adversity in our life, we are driven to despair. Not with it. We are driven to despair that we either sit in or mask masked with happiness instead of being driven to lament. But David is showing us something different. But before we get to what David said, I want to think through with you the ways that we respond poorly, the ways that we respond when suffering and adversity comes in our life. I think the first thing that's significant for us to think about when we think about suffering, adversity, and struggles in our life is where that comes from. Because our culture, again, veers off in one of two directions. Either this is all your fault, or none of this is your fault. Our culture says, either you are absolutely a product of your own choices. You want to know why you're having problems? It's because of your own choices. Stop making those choices, and everything will be fixed. But what's the problem that most of us know? Sometimes suffering comes from outside of us. Sometimes suffering is not at all the result of our choices. Sometimes adversity is not at all the result of things that we've done. We really can be sinned against by others, and it really does affect us. But what's the other side of that coin? Sometimes, your suffering is the result of bad decisions. Our decisions have consequences. The things that we do matter. And when we do things that have bad consequences in our life. When we actively choose to do things that are hurtful to our bodies, and more importantly, to our souls, we can't turn around and say, well, why is this happening to me? It's like the person who who drives their car off a cliff and says, why am I hurting? What did I ever do to deserve this? Namely, drive your car off a cliff. There are so many times in our life where we make a series of bad decisions and then turn around and look around and go, well, whose fault is this? I remember uh, a long time ago, uh, the big sort of popular thing were demotivational posters, right? Sort of these, these posters that kind of had this dark, despairing tone to them. And I remember vividly, I had a friend who was a pastor who had one hanging in his office. And it was a a picture of a chain. And one of the links in the chain was pulling apart, was breaking. And the caption on it was, have you ever stopped and thought that the one thing that all your broken relationships have in common is you? I thought that was a sort of odd thing for a pastor to have on his office. And yet, one of the things that we need to see is that suffering can be born out of our decisions. Because when we sin, We actively separate ourselves from God, but one of the other consequences is we push ourselves away from others. We isolate ourselves from other people by our sin. And so on the one hand, sometimes our suffering is our own fault, but other times it's not. Other times our suffering is a result of things that have been done to us. And so as we look at this, we have to realize that whatever our responses, our suffering has different origins, but no matter what their origins are, we have to fight not to be just cheerful for cheerfulness sake, not to be dark and despairing, but rather to enter into what the Bible calls lament. And in order to do that, we have to avoid unbelief and moralism. You see, when we face suffering, sometimes we think that we can just do good works to get ourselves out. When bad things are happening in your life, how many times are you tempted to think, ah, yes, bad things are happening in my life, but if I just start doing all the right Bible things, all of my problems will go away. If I start, just, if, if I would just read my Bible and pray every morning, all of the problems in my life would be fixed. And the Bible says no. No, that's not true. That's not how God works. You think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It said, blessed are those who mourn. So there's a way in which our suffering is, in and of itself, a blessing from God? Or maybe think about it another way. Look at David. David, in our story, had done all the things right. He had the chance to kill Saul. He had the chance to take what wasn't his at the moment. He had the chance to sin against Saul, to kill him, and he doesn't. He does the right thing, and yet, how does David feel? Isolated, alone, suffering, and struggling. You see, we can't work our way out of suffering, because that's not how God works. But we also can't turn and walk away. You see, some of us, while we're tempted to try to work our way out of our suffering, others of us walk away in unbelief. This is especially my temptation. Whenever hard things happen to me, my first question is, where are you at on this one, God? God, I thought you were supposed to be good. Where are you at? I think we can all imagine David saying this in the scenario. He did the right thing. He didn't kill Saul. Every, everything should have, like, like maybe lightning would have killed Saul and then everybody would have said, David, the guy that does the right thing, now he's king, everything is fine. But it doesn't. Not everything falls into place the way we want. When we do the right thing, it doesn't automatically guarantee that God fixes all of our problems. Suffering sometimes lasts a lot. Struggling stays with us longer than we want. Adversity is more common than we want it to be. So how do we handle that? Let's look at the way that David lamented. The way that David addressed this problem in his heart. One of the first things we see is that he addresses this prayer of his, this song, to God. Not that. He addresses his lament, his complaint, his frustration to God, not at God. Right? He says, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord for mercy. There's a difference, right? Those of you who have kids understand the difference between being talked to and talked at. Right? When my kids talk to me, they may say something like, Dad, can I have some orange juice? When they talk at me, what they're saying is, Dad, why don't you get me some orange juice? Think about this when it relates to our suffering. How many times do we say, not, God, I am suffering, but we say, God, why don't you fix my suffering? How many times do we not say, God, I am struggling right now? Instead we say, God, why are you like this? Why are you making me struggle? You see, one of the first things we need to see about lament is it's addressed to God, not accusatorially addressed at God. But not just that. We also see that it's rooted in faith. David's prayer of lament is rooted in faith. Because he knows that there's no one else that he can turn to. There's no one else but God that he Because oftentimes, when we're really suffering, when we're really struggling, when things are really going bad, it's not something small that somebody can take care of. It's not a flat tire, a parking ticket, or some minor dust level. Oftentimes, real suffering, real struggle, is deeper and longer-term. And so David roots his lament, in vain. As he does that, he is honest about the entire situation. He doesn't hold back from God. He doesn't say, Okay, God, I'm going to dress my language up and good and happy Christian thoughts, does he? I mean, as we've read through this, David was being brutally honest with God about what was going on in his life. He was not holding anything back. And in fact, he was not only just not holding anything back... But he was telling God not just what was going on, but how he was feeling about what was going on. God, I feel like there is no one else around me. I feel like I have no friends. I have no advocates. I have no help, God. Which is interesting because David did. Jonathan is still alive at this point. Jonathan is still David's best friend. Jonathan is still David's advocate. But what happens when we suffer? What happens when we struggle? Can we see those things all the time? We can't, right? Do we feel like those things are true all the time? No. And what's interesting about this is that lament allows us not just to address things to God, not just to have a faith-filled response in the midst of suffering, but also allows us to feel in these moments. You see, God does not call us to be unfeeling, to be simply walking around thinking the right thoughts all the time. God understands that when we're in the midst of struggle, adversity, and suffering, that what we feel does not always line up with the truth. And he hears that in our lament. And the last thing that's really interesting about David lament and I want to point out to you is that it's long-term. See, most of us want a quick fix. I want to walk away from this sermon going, Okay, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. If I just go home today and do a little lamenting, everything will be fixed. If I just, if I just lament, done. What's interesting is David has been on the run for years. And the way that he talks in this psalm is not, Hey God, fix it. Hey God, I got problems. Hope you can solve them. No. He says, I continually cry out to you. God, I have been crying out to you. I have been struggling and I'm continuing to struggle. God, I've been suffering for years. God, I don't want to be the way that I am and yet here I am You committing the same sins, struggling with the same things, suffering from the same sort of afflictions. God, I want to change. And one of the things we see is that lament gives us permission to see that God is working in long-term ways, not just short-term ways. So this is how David prays in the midst of his suffering and his struggle, which brings the question to you and I, how do you pray this? when adversity strikes you, what do your prayers look like? I know my prayers are often rooted in accusation of God. My prayers often are not filled with faith. They hold back parts of the situation. I don't mention to God where my sin has created a lot of my problems. And they're short-term and quick. You see, oftentimes, That's the way my prayers look. They look like the opposite of lament. Did you hear the opposite of lament? Lament is not filled with faith. It's filled with accusation. Lament wants a quick fix. And lament is not honest about the parts that I have played in my struggles. But David doesn't do that. He honestly laments. And as he does, he begins to show glimmers of hope the first thing we see as David begins to hope is David saying that he's not enough. Now this is something that's hard for us to admit. David says, my enemies, the struggles, the things that are causing me problems are too strong for me. I am not enough. I need you, God, to fix this. And that's hard, because I want to be able to fix my problems. I want to be enough. I want to be able to take life by the bootstraps and do it. But what if David say, no, I need you, God. You are the one who is enough for me because my enemies are too strong. He humbles himself in this process. And he says something really interesting. He says that, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. Now this we hear with our 21st century ears and sort of shrug and go, Neat. God is his piece of something in the land of the living. But what David's doing is actually referencing a bigger picture in the Old Testament. You see, when the people of Israel came into the promised land, the tribes were all given a different part of the promised land to live in. And so they sort of divided up. Everybody who was from the tribe of Dan got in between this river and that river. Everybody in the tribe of Gad got between this mountain and that mountain. Everybody in Judah got between this lake and that land. They were all given a portion of the land, except for one tribe. There was one tribe that was not given a portion of land. And that was the priests, the Levites, the people who were to serve God in the temple. God said, no, you don't get your own section of land. Because, priest, I will be your portion. I will be your inheritance. I will be the thing that you continue to pass on to your children. I will be your place of home and refuge. You see, what lament should ultimately point us to is this idea that what we really need in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of adversity, is the same thing that the priests got. They got the presence of God. And they got home. This isn't something that's far off. David doesn't say that, oh God, you will be my portion and you will fix all this later. He says, what God is offering him is something that he can experience and have here and now. And the reason he can do that is because there was another priest who came much later than David, who was David's great, great, great great grandson. And this priest, Jesus, was cut off from the land of the living. His portion was taken away from Him so that you and I might be able to stand clean in the presence of God. So that you and I might be able to experience God as our portion. You see, we don't deserve that. What we deserve is to be separated from the people of God. But because of what Jesus has done for us, We get the full presence of God, even in the midst of our suffering. And so our hope is not in God fixing things. Our hope is not in God making everything hard in our life go away. Our hope is in the very presence of God. Our hope is in His love, which He freely gave to us through Jesus. It's interesting, as you look at Parks and Rec over the long haul. A little transition there. Follow me on it. you look at the arc of the series, what happens to Leslie and April. In the series, Leslie continually faces adversity. Kind of one bad thing happens after another to her. The, the way that the sort of episodes and arcs work themselves out is her optimism is continually challenged. And by the end of the show, what you see is that she has realized that she needs other people. That she needs her team. She needs her community. And what happens with April is her gloominess is broken up. Her despair is subverted by maybe a more optimistic character than, than Leslie, the one that becomes April's husband, Andy. And Andy's love changes April from being gloomy and despairing to being grudgingly happy and smiling. And what we see is a picture of the way that the gospel of Jesus works in our hearts in the midst of suffering. When we begin to turn and not just look down at our suffering, but take our suffering, our trials, our adversity, honestly to God, Begin to look up to Him and be honest about the way that we have been a part of this and the way that others have been a part of this. Be honest about the way that we feel in the midst of our suffering. When we begin to look upward with that, we can begin to trust that God is our portion. As we trust that God is our portion, we see those around us who are in the same boat, who need one another just like we do. And it's what knits us together. This is where the gospel community part that we believe here at City Church becomes integral. Because I need others to lift my chin up, to lift my eyes up off of myself, to remind me of when I am causing my own suffering, and to point me to be honest to Jesus. And I need to be transformed. And that's something that I can only experience presence of God, not by running from it, not by despairing or covering it over with fake happiness, but by being honest and in a faith-filled way, taking my struggles, my suffering, my adversity to God. That's fine.